you would be taking out your Bibles and following along this evening to test the things I have to say, to see that it is by the Word of God. If we find it to be such, I hope that we'll take and apply it in our lives that we can be better servants of God in the future than we have been in the past. Last week, we asked a question, really two questions. We talked about how when somebody, maybe they're moving to a new area or visiting somewhere, will often ask, does anybody know of a sound congregation in that area? Or they'll talk about a church being a sound congregation. Or somebody may say of somebody, is that a sound preacher? Or maybe they'll make the statement that that person is a sound preacher. As we talked about last week, we often misuse the word sound. We just simply, when we say sound, what we often mean is we're talking that. Are they non-institutional? We looked last week at a sound preacher. We looked at four things about the sound preacher. We looked at his relationship to the Word of God, how he believes it to be the inspired Word of God. He believes it to be infallible. He reads it. He studies it. He meditates on it. He has confidence in it. We looked at the teaching of a sound preacher last week. We looked at what it was not. It's not the myths, the disputes, the controversies, or ear-tickling messages. But it is the sound words, it's teaching that deals with issues. It's preached in season and out of season. We talked about the result of his teaching is that people are informed and people are better equipped to teach others. We talked about several things about his character, how he's, he's patient, he's gentle, he pursues righteousness, faith, love, peace, and others. We talked about his conduct. He's somebody that actually lives and practices what he teaches. He's not hypocritical in his nature. He's somebody you can look to as an example. And we talked about that last week as being what a sound preacher is. But the other question we often ask, and the question we want to explore tonight, is people often ask, is that a sound church? They're visiting somewhere again. Is that a sound church? Well, what exactly is a sound church? Five things I think the scriptures point out about a sound church. These five things are what we need to look for. Somebody's going to move to a new area. Somebody's visiting somewhere. They say, where is there a sound congregation? Here's what you want to look for. So let's talk about what is a sound church. The first thing we want to note about a sound church, it should be rather obvious, is that a sound church is a church that wants and accepts only sound preaching. Again, we explored last week and talked about what is a sound preacher. We took a look at the sound preacher and we talked about his conduct and his character. But I want you to focus on the first two things we talked about last week for just a second. We talked about his relationship to God's Word and in particular the message that he teaches. And as we talked about the message that he teaches, what it is and what it is not, well the kind of message, and we'll talk about some of those briefly here in a second, the kind of teaching and preaching we said last week a sound preacher Desire, or a sound preacher teaches is the same kind of teaching that a sound church will desire. They want and they accept only sound teaching and preaching. So again, a sound church wants and demands sound teaching and preaching. If a congregation is going to be sound, they need sound teaching and sound preaching. That's what they demand. That's what they want. That's what they desire. So here's what that is that they want. They want, first and foremost, teaching that deals with the issues. Go to Titus chapter 1. We looked at this last week, but go to Titus chapter 1. 
Remember in Titus chapter 1, we'll come back to this passage later on again, Paul has left Titus in Crete that he could set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, verse 5. And so then he lists what those qualifications of elders are, but he said in verse 9, talking about the qualifications of elders, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to approve those who contradict. So the elders need to be able to contradict, to, to, to oppose those that contradict the truth. Verse 10, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of dishonest gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then he says in verse 13, This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely, so that they may be sound in the faith. So we talked about this passage last week, and that there needs to be teaching and preaching on the issues. The, the, the elders need to be aware of the issues. The preacher needs to be aware of the issues. But they need to be teaching the congregation of the issues. Again, you go down the road and you say, Okay, well the elders know what the issues are, and the preacher knows what the issues are. But move 20, 30 years down the road. Are those that are in the congregation now that could be qualified to serve in 20 or 30 years, are they aware of the issues? How can they be unless that's the teaching and preaching that they're hearing? That's what a sound congregation wants. They want somebody to come in and is going to deal with these issues that need to be dealt with. There are many issues out there. There are many things that are out there that need to be dealt with where there's error being taught and, they will, and it should be demanded by a sound congregation. They demand that somebody teach them of those and address the truth and help them and equip them to, te- to answer those in error. But not only do they want teaching on the issues, they want sound words. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. In 1 Timothy 4 and in verse 6 it said, In pointing out these things to the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being nourished on the words of faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But refuse godless myths fit for only old women. On the other hand, train yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily training is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. See, he tells him here in verse 6, he talks about the, the nourished on the words of faith and of the sound doctrine. We talked last week about that word sound. It means to be free from error. So a sound, a sound church should first and foremost accept only the truth and no error. And they accept the truth and they have accept teaching and preaching that is good for their health. Remember, the word also means, it has to do a lot of times with physical health. This Greek word rendered sound in the New Testament oftentimes is dealing with, especially in the Gospels, you'll see it appear where it's dealing with somebody's physical health. Well, in the same way, this teaching and preaching can equip us to where we're better servants of God and where we are in a better spiritual health when we're hearing this kind of teaching and this kind of preaching. We want to hear teaching on the sound words. What this also means is they do not want the mess that we talked about last week in 1 Timothy 4 and in verse 7. Remember in 1 Timothy 4 and in verse 7, it says to refuse godless myths. That's what Timothy wasn't to teach. But also a sound congregation does not want that kind of teaching. Remember we talked about last week, these these godless myths, the word myths has to do with a story that's hard to differentiate between truth and reality. There may be a, 
There may be a good principle behind the story that's being told, but what's happening in these godless myths is people are building their, their teaching and preaching around their stories to make a good point versus making a good point and using a story to maybe illustrate. There's a difference. There's a difference in basing your teaching and preaching on storytelling and occasionally using an illustration to prove a point. And what Paul's telling Timothy to avoid is godless myths. You avoid the storytelling. That's not what a sound congregation wants. A sound congregation wants the kind of teaching and preaching that Paul told Timothy he needed to teach, and that's avoiding that kind of thing. Avoiding the, the, the telling of the stories and all that. It's going to be the kind of teaching and preaching that's based in God's Word. Also because of that, they do not want teaching that is disputes. In 1 Timothy 6 and in verse 4. He talks about the teachers who are conceited, understand nothing, having more but interesting controversial questions and disputes about words. Some churches don't want teaching and preaching. That's just disputes. They're to sort of stir something up. Again, we mentioned this last week. There's a difference in dealing with an issue that needs to be addressed and people need to be aware of and bringing something up just to cause a dispute or to cause some controversy. There's a difference. What they want is they want somebody that's going to inform them, here's what's being taught in the world, here's this error over here, and so this is what you need to understand. Here's the truth, here's the error being taught, here's how you answer that. That's different than this person over here that brings something up, and all they're trying to do is just cause some dispute and some disagreement and some debate back and forth. That's not what they want in sound teaching and preaching, because that's not what sound teaching and preaching is, so that's not what a sound church demands. They do not want teaching and preaching that is disputes. But I think something else we need to notice is they demand this both from the local preacher and a gospel meeting preacher. They demand that kind of teaching and preaching from the man that occupies the pulpit on a full-time basis, but also from those who may hold a meeting. Now, that does not mean that every lesson that the preacher needs to preach or that every time you have somebody for a meeting, you need to have them deal with some issue. Somebody's got a good series on prayer, have them speak on prayer. They've got a good series on faith, have them preach on faith. Doesn't mean they have to come in and deal with some issue. Here's why I say that this is important to understand. If somebody's not willing to preach on the issues, then they're not willing to risk standing alone. If somebody's not willing to address what needs to be addressed and inform people of what needs to be informed, how do you know they're willing to stand alone? If you have somebody that, that's willing to take a stand, somebody that's willing to take a stand and teach on the issues, you bring that person in, you know that they're willing to step on some toes that may need to be stepped on. They're not there to try and make everybody feel better. They're there to address what needs to be addressed from God's Word. That's why you want somebody like that, either full-time or in a meeting, because they're going to stand for the truth even if they have to stand alone. That's what a sound church demands. They demand sound teaching and preaching. Preaching based on God's Word that addresses the issues and teaching that's not based on the myths and not based on disputes. Let me tell you a second thing. That a sound church, about a sound church, and that is a sound church desires to be scripturally organized. God has a plan for the organization of a local church. In Philippians chapter 1 and in verse 1. In Philippians chapter 1 and in verse 1, Paul addressing the church at Philippi says, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons. 
What he just addressed in Philippians 1 and in verse 1 is three different things there. You have the saints, that's all your members. You have the overseers, that's your eldership. And then you have the deacons. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul beginning at verse 1 talks about it being a trustworthy statement. If a man aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a good work. He goes on to list the qualifications of elders. And then beginning at verse 8, he lists the qualifications of deacons. Church desires to be scripturally organized. They desire to be organized just as God has prescribed as well. Here's God's plan for the organization of the local church. And so a sound church desires that. Now, here's what that means. Here's what that means. They want men that meet the qualifications first and foremost. It is, it, the church needs to have those serving in the role of elders. God designed the organization of the local church with elders and deacons and saints in such a way because that's what's best for the local church. The church should desire, as we've already said, the church should desire to be scripturally organized. But in order for a church to be scripturally organized, they must demand and want that the men appointed to the roles meet the qualifications. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Beginning at verse 2, given the qualifications of elders, Paul says, An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but considerate, peaceable, free from the love of money, leading his own house well, having his children in submission with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to lead his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he not become... He will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And then in Titus 1, beginning at verse 5, or beginning at verse 6, he said, namely, talking about the, the elders, namely, if any man is beyond reproach, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, who are not accused of dissipation or rebellious, for the overseer must be beyond reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of dishonest gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-control, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to reprove those who contradict. That's the qualifications of elders. So it comes time for a church and they say, okay, we're going to look out and see if we have men qualified to serve as elders. And we'll take for just a second the list in 1 Timothy 3, because we'll come back to 1 Timothy 3 in just a moment. But in 1 Timothy, let's take the list in 1 Timothy 3, and somebody says, okay, let's appoint men to serve as elders. And they say, well, we got this man over here who, who he meets all but this one qualification, but he's close enough. Let's go ahead and appoint him as an elder. Or this man over here, he meets all but these over here, these couple of qualifications. You know, he's, he, he leads his house well. He's not a new convert. He's apt to teach. I don't know that he's really above, you know, he's above reproach, but I don't know if he really shows, if he's really hospitable. But, you know, we, we need to have elders so let's appoint him. That's not what a sound church does. A sound church does not appoint men to serve as elders simply because they need to have men. They, to, because that's how God would have them to be so organized. They appoint men to serve as elders because there are men qualified to serve as elders. It's a dangerous, dangerous thing to appoint those that are unqualified to serve in the role of an elder. 
And so they desire to have those meet the qualifications. The same thing with deacons. When it comes time to appoint deacons, we've been going through the process here. They appoint those that meet the qualifications. They're dignified, not double-tongued, not indulging in much wine, not fond of dishonest gain, but holding to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. And these men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Their wives must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife, leading their children in their own house as well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And again, it's time to point, as we're going through the process of appointing deacons, you meet, want those that meet the qualifications. Because that's what God has laid out as the qualifications. God didn't lay these qualifications out as, uh, this is some pretty good parameters, you know, there's a little wiggle room here. This is what God said the qualifications are, and a sound church demands when they're appointing somebody in the roles of elders or deacons, they meet those qualifications. But not only do they demand those that will be put in, and they want men that meet the qualifications, if they do not have those qualified, this is important, if they do not have those qualified, they work towards it. So you look at a place and you say, okay, it's time to appoint elders. We go through the process. Church doesn't have elders. They go through the process. You go through and say, okay, we don't have a plurality of men qualified. Well, then guess what? It's time we get busy and work towards that goal. We can't become complacent in the time and look at it and say, well, we just don't have those qualified. And I think that's what happens in a lot of places. We look around and say, oh, we don't have those qualified right now. And the church becomes complacent to not work towards that. If anyone desires or aspires the office of an overseer, he desires a good work. There's got to be some aspiration for the office. There's going to take some work to get to the qualifications, and then when they're put in as elders, it requires work. And so you see, a church that doesn't have those qualified, they're encouraging those, and the men are working themselves to meet those qualifications. Their wives are striving to meet the qualifications of elders and deacons' wives. They're working towards that. But not only do they work to that if they, don't have quali- if they don't have those qualified, if there are those that are qualified, they will appoint them. I know one of places where it came time and it was, okay, let's appoint, should we appoint elders? And some people look back and said, well, you know, we may have some men that are qualified, and there are places that did. They had a plurality of men qualified. But they became complacent thinking, well, things have gone so well so far without elders. Why do we really need to appoint them? But that's the, that's the organization of the local church that God had. There was to be overseers and deacons and saints. And so maybe you look out and say, well, we haven't had elders for however many years, or a place says we haven't had elders for however many years, but they haven't been qualified and they don't want to appoint them because they're complacent. That's not a very sound word. If you haven't been qualified, you appoint them to serve as elders. Because that's what God has desired, is for the church to have elders. In fact... In fact, I want you to notice something in Titus chapter 1 and in verse 5. For this reason, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains. Set in order what remains. The New King James says that you set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. If a church has those that are qualified to serve in the capacity of elders, they look out and say, oh, we've got a plurality of men qualified, but we're not going to appoint them to serve as elders. What is, is the church says, we've been doing just fine without elders. We don't need to appoint them. They're lacking something. That's why Paul left Titus and Crete was to, to, to take care of the things that were lacking, and that was the church's needed elders. 
So what is a sound church? A church that accepts first and foremost, that wants and accepts only sound teaching and preaching, and a church that desires to be spiritually organized. But a sound church is also one who practices discipline. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and in verse 2, or 1 Corinthians chapter 5, rather not verse 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we've been going through this on, on Sunday morning through the book of 1 Corinthians. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it is actually reported, verse 1, that there is sexual immorality among you, and sexual immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Look at verse 2. And you have become puffed up and have not mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. There's a problem here. The problem is there is fornication among them. There's sexual morality among them, verse 1. Verse number 2, here's the other problem. They're puffed up and they haven't dealt with it. So here's what they need to do, verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And so you're there, and there's some sin among you, and here's this person in sin, and you're gathered together. What you do is you withdraw from that one. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and in verse 6, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who walks in an unruly manner, and not according to the tradition the tradition which they received from us. Some translations say that you withdraw from every brother walking disorder. So there's a command that, there, that when there are those that are walking that are unruly, those that are not walking in a manner that is proper, they're not doing what the scriptures teach, we withdraw from them. You see, that is a sound church understands a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. In 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, rather, chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We just looked at verses 1 through 5. About how in verse 1, there's sexual immorality among you, such not even named among the Gentiles. Verse 2, you're puffed up and you need to remove them from your midst. Verses 4 and 5, therefore when you are gathered together, deliver such a one to Satan. Now look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Remember, they're puffed up. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened, for Christ our Passover lamb also was sacrificed. You see, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Here you've got a church, there's a problem of sin. Somebody's in sin. And that's not dealt with properly. Then it becomes a wider spread problem. Let's just take for just a second. Could you imagine? Could you imagine somebody raising a child in the city of Corinth and, and here they're trying to teach their children to avoid the sin of sexual immorality, but you've got a brother over here who's undealt with who has his father's wife. Somebody's trying to tell their kid to avoid the sin of fornication and they're saying, but brother so-and-so has his father's wife. Could you imagine the church Imagine a church, and here elders come walking in, you have a situation like this, and 
you've got a fornicator there and somebody come, the elders come to somebody and says, we've noticed you've been missing services a lot lately. The person's going to say, why are you talking to me? Brother so-and-so over here is an immorality and everybody knows it. Why haven't you dealt with him? Or maybe people look at it and say, well, they didn't deal with brother so-and-so, so they won't deal with me. And so there's a little leaven, there's this problem that's in here, but it's undealt with and it grows to bigger and bigger problems. But you know, sound church doesn't have that problem because sound churches exercise church discipline. They withdraw from those who are walking unruly just as the scriptures teach. They don't have that problem of sin running rampant around and everybody's over here and, well, we didn't deal with this person, so now we can't deal with this person and we can't deal with that person over there. After all, what they did is minor compared look it looks is minor relative to what these others have done, but this church practices church discipline. But not only do they practice discipline, when they do practice discipline, they do so out of love. In 2 Thessalonians 3 and in verse 15, and do not regard him as an enemy, still talking about the discipline there in 2 Thessalonians 3. Do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. You admonish him the same way you admonish a brother. You admonish him as your brother. You see the text there in 2, Timothy, or 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. When you withdraw from, that's not the end. You do so out of love and you still try and restore that one. You admonish them. You don't count them as an enemy. You admonish them. But you see, the reason you're still admonishing them is because the withdrawal in the first place took place out of love. So they realized their need for change. That's what a sound church does. A sound church... It's a church that wants and accepts only sound teaching and preaching. A sound church is a church that desires to be scripturally organized. If they don't have men qualified, they work towards it. If they do, they appoint them to serve. And they make sure they are qualified men. And it's a church that practices discipline. Let me tell you a fourth thing. A sound church is a church that has members living the sound faith. The book of Titus deals with living the sound faith. The entirety of Titus. The theme of Titus is to be sound in the faith. The key verse is in verse 13 of chapter 1 where he told him to reprove those who were, who, were, who were not walking according to the faith that they may be sound in the faith. The word sound appears several times throughout the book. The book could divide itself into three major sections. Chapter 1 is about protecting the sound faith. That's why there's need for elders and for sound teaching and preaching. is to protect the sound faith. You keep those that are teaching things contrary outside. You deal with those who are teaching things contrary. Chapter 3, we'll come back to chapter 2 in a second because that's where I'm going to go. Chapter 3 is duties of the sound faith. Here's the things you need to do in the sound faith. But chapter 2 is living it. Chapter 2 is living the sound faith. Look at verse 1. But as for you, this is his command to Titus, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. So the first thing is, when you have members there speaking the things proper for sound doctrine, particularly he mentions the preacher, but they all are speaking the things which are proper for sound doctrine. But it's not just the speaking things proper. Look at Titus 2 and in verse 2. Here's what he commands the older men. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. That's what the older men are to be. So he says here, here's the older men, temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. Look at verse 3. Here's what the older women are to be. They are likewise to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may instruct young women in sensibility, to love their husbands, to love their children. So here's what he says in verse 3. And in the first part of verse 4, here's what older women are to do. 
Older women are to be reverent in their behavior. They're not to be malicious gossips. They're not to be enslaved to wine. They're to teach what is good and instruct the younger women. Now, here's what the younger women need to do. They need to be sensible because they've been instructed in sensibility. They love their husband. They love their children. They're sensible again, sensible, pure. In verse 5, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be slandered. So here's what he just said to the young women. Be, love your husbands, love your children, be sensible, be pure, be keepers at home, be kind, be subject to your husbands so the word of God can't, won't be blasphemed. Now, verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be sensible. So the young men need to be sensible in all things. Show yourself to be a model of good works with purity and doctrine, and doctrine dignified, sound in word, which is irreproachable, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. So here's the younger men now. So we've seen what the older men need to do, the older women need to do, the younger women need to do. Now here's the younger men. The younger men are to be sensible. They're to show themselves a model of good works and impurity and doctrine and dignified. They're to be sound in word, which is irreproachable, so the opponents will be put to shame. Now, verse 9. Keep moving through the text. Urge slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be pleasing, not contradicting, not pilfering, but demonstrating all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in everything. So now he's talking about, and at this point, the master-slave relationship, which no longer applies, but the principle would apply in the employee-employer relationship. Employees are to be subject to their bosses. They're, not to, they're to be pleasing. They're not to be contradicting, not pilfering, to demonstrate all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God and our Savior in everything. You know what he just said to Titus here as he's dealing with those at Crete? Here's what you instruct them to do. You instruct older men to live the sound faith. Older women to live the sound faith. Younger women to live the sound faith. Younger men to live the sound faith. You teach those that are slaves to live the sound faith. What group doesn't fit in any of those? Everything's just been covered. You know what he just, what, what Paul has told Titus to teach them? Teach them all to live the sound faith. You see, when, they're live, when the members of a congregation are living the sound faith, and that's a sound work. If everybody's living the sound faith, if everybody's standing for the sound faith, if everybody's standing for the truth, that's a sound congregation. We could put it another way. The members are not hypocritical, but genuine. Those of a sound church are not hypocritical. They're not those that come and tell you, here's what you need to do, and then turn around and live in another way. Now, I'm not saying that every member of a church may not be. You may have a church that is, as a whole sound, that has some members that may be hypocritical. That's not what I'm saying. You can have a church that is sound that has somebody hypocritical that they may not know about. But as a whole, as, a, as an overwhelming majority, the members are those that are living the sound faith. They're practicing what they teach. A sound congregation has those that are not hypocritical, but their faith is genuine. They're living what they believe. They're being sound and living the sound faith. But finally, this evening, a sound church is a church that is not divided. In John chapter 17, in John chapter 17, as Jesus is offering his prayer here on the night of his betrayal, this is the longer of the prayers that are recorded. We're familiar with the prayer in the garden itself, but there's a longer prayer taking place here in John 17. And he's prayed, 
for his apostles in the verses prior to this. Beginning at verse 20. Beginning at verse 20, he prays not just for the apostles, but for all those who would serve him. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, verse 20, but for also those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. You know who Jesus just prayed for? He prayed for you and for me. Look again at what he said. I don't ask for these alone. That is not just on the behalf of the apostles, but for all those who believe in me through their word. What's recorded for us is the words that the apostles and those of the first century writers wrote by inspiration. The things that we study, we believe and we practice. We believe in him through their word. You know what that means? Jesus was praying in John 17 for all of us. And you know what he prayed? That they may all be one. He prayed that we would all be one. There be no divisions among us. So that's a problem that we've been seeing in 1 Corinthians. Is they were divided. But see, we must not be divided. It's not on the board, but remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. As Paul is introducing the book in 1 Corinthians 1, he said beginning at verse 6, Now I exhort you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. There be no divisions among you. Now here's what that means. There be no divisions among us because of indifferences. There be no divisions because of indifferences. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Be turning there, 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. Now concerning the things, verse 1 of chapter 8, sacrificed idols. We know, we are, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love buildeth up. You know, in this text, as Paul goes through chapters 8, 9, and 10, you have a problem where there here are those over here that say, I can eat the meat sacrifice idols. I can eat meat. I can go to the marketplace and get meat. Some of them were going to the extreme when it came to the eating of meats. But overall, we can go to the marketplace and we can buy meat. And we're not going to ask if it was sacrifice idols, but we can have that meat. As he says in chapter 10, they could. Go to the marketplace, don't ask. You can buy the meat, you can have it. That's one side of it. But then you have those over here who say, I don't feel comfortable because of the past life that I've lived in serving idols where we offered the meats as a sacrifice to idols and then we would eat of it. I don't feel comfortable eating these meats. So we have two sides to that. And you have those at Corinth over here that want to know those that can eat the meats, why will those over here not eat the meats? Then you have those over here that couldn't eat the meats looking back at those that could as though they had done something wrong. And Paul tells them in chapter 8, in chapter 9, and in chapter 10 that they don't need to have this problem. In verse 13, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, ever, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Chapter 9 is Paul being an example of one who denied liberties to himself for the sake of others and for the sake of the gospel. Chapter 10, he warns them, take heed to themselves lest they fall by the same example as Israel, but instead they should be willing to give up their liberties for their brethren. Now, 
The same principle is dealt with in Romans chapter 14. Matters of indifference. In Romans chapter 14, it's not on the board again, but Romans 14. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on opinions. You know what he's dealing with here in Romans chapter 14? This is not a matter of faith, as some try and put in the text of Romans 14. Romans 14 is dealing with, here's these two things, where neither one is right and neither one is wrong. You can't, in this case it's eating meats, but it's, it's different as the text of Romans 14 seems to be dealing with the Jews eating meats, because here were the meats you couldn't eat before you obeyed the gospel versus could after. Both are eating of meats, both follow the same principle, though it's a slightly different application, because one is Gentiles eating meat sacrificed to idols, the other is Jews now not wanting to eat meats that they could because they were unclean when they followed the old law. But again, both having to do with eating of meats, 1 Corinthians 8, Romans 14. In both texts, what Paul, what Paul is saying to those at Corinth and to those at Rome is, you need to be willing to deny your liberties for the sake of your brethren. You shouldn't be divided over the things that are indifferent. Over the things that it's not a matter of right or wrong. If somebody wants to eat meat or somebody doesn't want to eat meat, that's their choice. There's no passage that says you must eat meat. There's no passage that says you must not eat meat. So it's not to pass judgment over one's opinions. We ought not be divided over, this, over, over somebody's opinion over here and another person's opinion over here. Unless it is doctrine, we ought not be divided. Unless it is doctrine, we ought not be divided. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as well. 1 Corinthians 12 as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, remember, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and through chapter 14, we're dealing with those who have a problem with spiritual gifts. The application is different because these are gifts that are spiritual gifts. We don't have spiritual gifts today, as chapter 13 would point out. However, the application holds true in that, and the principle holds true in that, there are those that have varying talents and gifts today. While they may not be spiritual gifts, there are those that have varying talents and gifts today. And if one says, well, I think I have the better gift over here because I can do this over here in services, and you can only do this over here, I have the better gift, they'll be divided. Or this one here says, well, I don't feel that I hold a quite as important role as this person over here. I don't do anything quite as important. This person over here will do the invitation and lead in singing, and I'll wait on the table. I don't feel like I'm as important. Somebody else over here may view this person over here as, are they not as important? Here I am doing the invitation and singing, and then they're waiting on the table. See, everyone has varying talents. Everyone has various things. We ought to be divided over gifts. Who has the better gifts? I have this talent over here, and you have that talent over there. We ought not be divided over that. The church of Corinth was. They were arguing over who had the better gifts. But that should not divide us. The only, the only time... That division takes place and is necessary. Listen carefully. The only time division should take place and is necessary is when somebody somewhere is going outside the doctrine of Christ. Unless error is being taught, unless somebody's going beyond what is written, then there needs to be no division. What unites us is stronger than what? divides us. And we ought to be united unless it has to do with, with somebody teaching error. You see, the fact is we shouldn't be divided because we've got to show love. In 1 Corinthians 13, that's what they needed to learn. The greater gift is the gift of love. Show love towards one another. Don't be divided over these spiritual gifts. Don't be divided over all these other problems. 1 Corinthians 13 fit, would fix 
a lot of problems, or all the problems of the church at Corinth, if they would show the proper love towards one another. But not only must we love, we must remember we are one body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 12. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one member, so also is Christ. For also by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink one spirit of one Spirit. For also the body is not one member but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has appointed members, each of them in the body, just as he desired. And if they are all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, how much more is it that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary? And those members of the body which we think are less honorable are these we bestow more abundant honor and our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no such need, but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked. So that there be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Listen to verse 27. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. You sound church is a church that's not divided. They understand each one holds a different role. There are all many members, but there are many members of one body. This is as the hand doesn't say to the foot that it has no need of it because it's not a hand, or the eye to the ear that it has no need of it. Each member, when doing its part, works together for good. And the church does not need to be divided. Again, unless there's some error being taught, the church should not be divided. We ask the question, what is a sound church? Here's what we've seen. A sound church is a church that wants and accepts only sound teaching and preaching. A sound church is a church that desires to be scripturally organized. A sound church is a church that practices discipline. It's a church whose members live the sound faith, and it's a church that is not divided. That's what a sound church is. Hopefully we've been able to answer the question, what is a sound church? It may be that there are one or more present this evening who may have never responded in obedience to the gospel. If you've never responded in obedience, now is the time. For what is our life but a vapor that appears for a short time and vanishes away? So if you've heard the word and you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you're not willing to repent of your sins, to confess your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism, to rise and walk in a newness of life. If you're here and you've done it, but somewhere along the line you said, I've not lived the sound faith as I should. If it's of a private nature, you can take it to God privately in prayer, but if of a public nature, we'll pray with you and for you for God to forgive you. But no matter what your need is, if we could assist you this evening in any way, would you not come forward as together we stand and as we sing.